All right. Well, good morning. As Miss, uh, well, plenty of people up here have already <laughs> introduced me. My name is Sarah Bell, and uh, I am the children's and youth pastor here at Ponca City Church. And, <laughs> and um, I am so honored to be up here. Um, it's still wild to me that um, I'm up here because um, it's not something I ever saw myself doing. Um, I've done plenty of public speaking and um, led a lot of different things, but this is definitely a new experience and definitely um, different than anything I've ever done. And there's a weight, unlike anything I've ever experienced, that comes with being up here. Um, like I said, I've been in a lot of different scenarios where I've, you know, led and spoke, and um, this is different. This is way different, and, and I, it's different because um, there is um, a responsibility that comes with it, unlike anything else, and that is to preach God's word and what he would have to say. I am just a vessel. I am just a person, um, and I want to make sure that God speaks today what he wants to be said and that um, hearts are open to receive it. So could we close our eyes really quickly, and let's pray and get started. Heavenly Father, we just pause for just a second. And Lord, we ask that you would um, join us today. Lord, we know that your Holy Spirit is here. And we receive it. Lord God, we are honored and humbled to be in the presence of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And God, I am humbled and honored to be here, to be able to share your word, Lord God, that is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And God, I pray that what you would want to be said today would be said, Lord God, that I would get out of the way and that anything that is not of you, Lord, would fall to the wayside, Lord, that you would, um, that you would move in a way like never before today. God, we're here to receive it. We're here believing that what you have for us is good and perfect. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, well, I just want to tell you, I'm a little bit more nervous than I normally am because um, my family always comes and supports me. They um, um, are always here for me, and I appreciate that. My sister's here from Edmond. But I also, she probably does not want me to do this, but I also have an extremely important person in my life. Um, my best friend from grade school, high school is here with her family all the way from Idaho. Um, if you guys could just give a little wave. Oh my gosh, yes, can we please welcome them? Um, they're here all the way, from, they obviously did not come for me. I invited her like on Thursday when I knew she was in town and um, I'm so glad that she's here. She has been um, with me through some of my toughest seasons and I her as well, and um, she just has a very special place in my heart. I mean, how many people can say that they still are in relationship with people they grew up with, and, and a good one, not, not like a, an occasional, I mean, we talk a lot. I don't know if you've downloaded the Marco Polo app, but it's like the best thing ever, because it allows she and I to talk pretty much every day, um, and, on our, and with our convenience, we're busy moms and working moms, and so, um, and wives, and so it helps us to stay connected, and we get to see each other's face, and be goofy, and silly, and everything else, and so I'm just really glad you're here today. I love you. Um, so we are going to talk a little bit um, today. We've been in this series called Greatest Hits, and when Pastor T.D. asked me to um, come up here, I didn't even have to think about it, because my absolute favorite book in the Bible is um, Nehemiah, and um, I, I'm, I know why, you know, obviously why um, it, it strikes a chord with me. I, you know, I said earlier that the word is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And um, most of you know, um, I've talked a little bit about it, but I am from the Ponca tribe and um, 
grew up with a father who was the chief of our tribe for many years and um, watched him go through uh, different seasons. And um, I swear I'm going to write a book about it. <laughs> um, someday you guys are going to hear the whole story. <laughs> um, but uh, just watching him and watching my mom in leadership, she was a Girl Scout leader and um, a youth group leader, and just growing up having parents who were leaders. And so naturally I'm a byproduct of my parents. And um, for as long as I can remember, um, I've been in a leadership role in some capacity. And um, I'm 37 years old and um, I'm still learning. I am convinced I will never stop learning. And this is why Nehemiah appeals to me. I don't know how much time you guys have spent in Nehemiah. A lot of people don't spend a lot of time in the Old Testament. Um, but this story is so, so good, and so that's where we're going to be today. So if you have your Bibles, if you want to turn with me to Nehemiah, we're going to start right from the beginning. We're going to take it chapter for chapter as best that I can. I wish that I could have a soundtrack playing while I preach today because I was talking to my husband, and um, we are both um, avid lovers of, um, well, he, he really enjoys superhero more, movies more than I do, but I love uh, medieval things set in the medieval time or, um, you know, this whole outline of like someone coming to save the kingdom and all this other stuff. I've always loved that. And um, so we're setting the stage. The, the, the um, time is 445 B.C. If you're there with your Bibles, you can turn to me in Nehemiah 1. The Babylonians, to give you a little back, to set the stage for you a little bit, the Babylonians have defeated Jerusalem to ash um, prior to this, 140 years, one years prior in 586 B.C. And we have Nehemiah, who is a cupbearer to the king. I had to look this up. It's one of the coolest names ever. If I'd had a son, I would have named him this, Artaxerxes. Can you say Artaxerxes? It's kind of different, but now you've learned it's new if you ever need to use it, right? Um, Artaxerxes, king of Persia. And if we could get that picture up here, um, this is, um, I work with children, so <laughs> if you'll permit me, I like to use pictures and have callbacks like I just did. It's my comfort zone. <laughs> But um, he was a king, uh, cupbearer to the king. And at, at first, when you first think cupbearer, cup you probably think, oh, that's not, I mean, that's a pretty lowly position. I mean, he sits at the king's feet. He brings the king his drinks. Uh, but actually, it's a pretty important position, extremely important position. I would dare say the king would have to have a great amount of respect and trust in a cupbearer. Because in this day, this was one of the most effective ways to take out leadership or to take out a king. Um, an army general, was to poison them. And so a cupbearer had the job <laughs> of making sure there, there was nothing in that cup that was going to kill his king. And so when you first think about a cupbearer, he's not a priest, he's not a prophet, um, but he was positioned. And that's something that I want to elaborate on a little bit later. He was not a priest, he wasn't a prophet, but he was positioned. And if you want to go with me to Nehemiah 1 through 4, I'll just read off of the slides. And you could read if you want to follow along with me. In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hen and I, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some of the other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned from fire. Now, I said earlier I wish I had a soundtrack. Do you see why? <laughs> because in, when I read this, in my mind, I'm hearing, like, a Game of Thrones soundtrack. I'm hearing Braveheart soundtrack. Like, I'm, it's playing in my head. 
just me? Okay, that's fine. Um, When I heard these things, I sat down and I wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. And the thing I want to say about this first and foremost is the pains of the church and the world ought to cause our hearts to grieve. And if, if they don't, we need to have a serious conversation with God about it. This, this hits me because, again, I mentioned to you that I'm from the Ponca tribe, and my people mean a great deal to me. The current state of the way things are, I'm not happy with. And my father fought for many, many years for things to be stable, for prosperity to come to our tribe. He try, I watched him time and time again try to set up systems that would set us up for success. And time and time again, I watched those things crumble, not of his own doing, but um, some opposition, which we'll get to later. And what I really love about this, too, is that Nehemiah is, is here, and he's, he's the cupbearer to the king of Persia. He could have just stayed comfortable. He could have stayed right there at the king's feet, could have stayed in the palace. He could have kept his job. Everything would have been cozy and fine, but he was moved by what Hannah and I told him. He couldn't, he, couldn't, he couldn't let it go. He couldn't go back to what he had done. And I think about my dad. I think about the times that I, you know, when I served on the election board in 2013 with my tribe, and I think there's just something in your spirit that won't let you let that be. And um, I was talking to my husband about this because I was trying to kind of set the stage for you guys a little bit more. Um, some of this might be controversial to you, but um, we um, love the series Game of Thrones. And um, I know it's rough, but there's this beautiful app out there called VidAngel. And if you've been like, I'm not watching Game of Thrones, or I watched and it was rough, like, I invite you to check out this app called VidAngel. This is a plug for VidAngel. Um, I'm pretty sure it's a Christian company. I'm not positive. I know they're actually in a litigation process right now because of some things, opposition, because they're doing a good thing. But what they do is they take a show like Game of Thrones that's really rough, and I knew this ahead of time from the reviews that there was a lot of stuff in there that I, I was not wanting to see. And you go to VidAngel, and they give you this little checkbox, and you just check what you don't want to see. If you don't want to see any sex scenes, check. If you don't want to hear any profanity, check. If you don't want to see any violence, check. And it's a cool thing because it goes, and it just takes all that out. And it's a smooth, seamless thing, and you never have to see it. It's really cool. So that's how we agreed. Jermaine was like, you know, he loves swords and fights and, you know, all this stuff. And I'm like, okay, yes, let's watch this, but let's watch it with some (laughs) censorship on it because it is extremely rough. And we love Game of Thrones. Um, do I have any, anybody brave enough to say Game of Thrones and fan a couple? Okay, Game of Thrones, um, Jon Snow, there is a guy in, in the movie um, Game of Thrones, and he is the bastard son to, um, to a king, and um, we come to find out later some things about that, but he is the lowest of the low. He's not even really considered because um, he was fathered outside of the king and queen's marriage, and um, he, the king has other um, um, sons and daughters, and he's not really allowed to do anything, but he's kept in the family. And when I read Nehemiah 1 through 4, I hear Game of Thrones soundtrack in my head. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is like, it's building up, right? Hannah and I comes, Nehemiah's like, okay, this is not, this is not setting well in my spirit. He hits his knees, he cries, he weeps, he prays. Conviction would not let him stay cozy in the castle, in the kingdom. If we can go to Nehemiah 2, 1 through 10. 
In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when mine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before, so the king asked me, Why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, What is it that you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven, and I answered the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. Then the king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked, How long will your journey take, and when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. I also said to him, If it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of Trans-Euphrates so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. And may I have a letter... To Asaph, keeper of the royal park, so he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple, and for the city wall, and for the residence I will occupy. And because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my request. So I sent to the governors of Trans-Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. The king had also sent army officers and cavalry with me. When Sambalat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about this, those are key players, take, take note, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. So I mentioned earlier that he was positioned. He wasn't a prophet. He wasn't a priest, but he was positioned. And here we see this, right? He's not in this high regard, as we would say, but he's positioned physically. He's at the king's feet. He sees him all day, every day. He hands him the cup. There's a mutual relationship. There's mutual respect there. He's positioned politically. Hello. <laughs> I wonder of the things that he's hearing, the conversations that he is held privy to, the, the information that he has. The king trusts him. And he's positioned financially. And we see this in Nehemiah 2. The king sees that he's an upset. And God gives Nehemiah the courage to say exactly what it is that he needs. And what happens? The king grants all of it. doesn't just give him money to do what he needs to do, to go rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. He gives him safe passage, armies, cavalries of men to protect him to go do this. And there's nothing in it for the king of Persia. There's nothing in it for Artaxerxes. In fact, it's actually... I'm sure he got a lot of side conversations about how that's not wise. You probably don't want to do that, but he did it. And I love in Nehemiah 2, it goes on a little bit further. We won't go into that too much. But I love about Nehemiah is that when he gets there, he strategically goes and he checks out the wall or what's left. He goes and he, and he sees things and he goes under the cover of night because he doesn't want to cause a big hubbub about what he's doing. He's very strategic in everything that he does. I love it. He goes and he checks out the wall. He sees, he kind of builds, builds, prepares himself for what's ahead, right? He goes and he's like, okay, here's the wall. All right, this is what we're doing. And then he goes and he gives a speech, a motivational speech at that, and then comes opposition. So if I could get that map of the wall up here to give you kind of an idea, this, <laughs> this I felt was extremely important for you to see. Because, you know, when we talk about a wall, we think, oh, it's probably, mm, yeah, mm, mm, mm. not to mention supplies that they had to work with. This is what we're talking about when we talk about a wall that Nehemiah is going back to rebuild. And if you notice down here on the bottom, 
it gives you um, a little bit of a key. And I thought it did, but I guess it doesn't. Um, in, in Nehemiah 3, which I did not, we're not going to go through. <laughs> but Nehemiah 3 really is really cool because it, sh- it tells all of the families that were commissioned to b- rebuild the wall. And I really like it. It's just a little, a little side note. I really like it because, as you know, I have three daughters. And there is a part in Nehemiah 3 that says a man and his daughters are commissioned to p- do a part of this wall. And I thought that was really cool. Um, but you can see here. It was not a small thing. I, I mean, if and I'm, I apologize, but there's a fish gate, you guys. <laughs> I don't even know what a fish gate is. Didn't have time to research. But there's a fish gate. And there's an east gate and a horse gate and a water gate. And stairs of David, a fountain gate. Like, this is pretty intense. And if that's not enough, if the building of the wall is not enough to go dang, um, he enlisted perfume makers, merchants, and goldsmith, not carpenters, not masonries, which would be helpful, right, to build a wall. <laughs> you might want to have a masonry or two, a carpenter or two, right? No, no. He was motivating a people. Number one, first of all, he had to get them on board. These people have been, have been looking at ash for how many years? We said 140-some years. They've been looking at rubble for 141 years, and then here comes this guy and says, let's rebuild it. So if that's not enough, and if that's not enough, the the mass amount of job that was done, now he's taking people that probably don't even know, I mean merchants that don't even own a hammer, and it's like, let's do this. There's a Ronald Reagan quote that I love, if I could get that up there. The greatest leader is not necessarily the one who does the greatest things, he's the one that gets the people to do the greatest things. And that's what Nehemiah did. And as some of you guys know, um, I'm a coach. I coach softball. I've had, I was hoping some of my girls would come today, but they're all, I think some of them are in a tournament. But um, I coach a softball team. This is my fourth season coaching the Bells Bulldogs. We are in 12U now. And I took this little bitty team of girls, um, that were coming off of an 0 and 12 season. My daughter was on there. And um, I just couldn't do it. <laughs> I was like, I cannot watch another game. I can't handle another loss. I'm too competitive. I'm going to take these girls and we're going to turn this thing around. And the next season, we had, I think, an 8 and 4 season. The next season, we had an 8 or 10 and 2 season, I think. Correct me if I'm wrong. I mean, it just kept getting better. Now, don't woohoo me too much because we're coming on. We're on a losing season right now. Now wins and losses are not everything; they really aren't. Sometimes the scoreboard does not reflect. But I will say this is the hardest season we've ever had, and the toughest season we've ever had. But when you coach, and I also a little bit else, I, I work with kids. Obviously, I'm in children's and youth ministry. I also am a teacher assistant at Roosevelt Elementary, and just amazing the things that these teachers do. Absolutely amazing what what they can accomplish in a day. Um, But what I love about this quote, what I love about Nehemiah, is that he saw potential in people. And as coaches, as teachers, as business owners, as leaders, we have to be able to do that. We have to be able to look inside people and see things that they can't yet see in themselves. Nehemiah did that. So 
let's go build a wall, um, Tracy, who um, is very fluent in, in essential oils, perfume maker. I got my perfume maker. Let's go build a wall, Tracy. And Chandra is a very successful entrepreneur selling a makeup line and skincare line. Chandra, grab your hammer. We're going to go build a wall. Okay, that wall actually, right? So that's, that's what Nehemiah is, Nehemiah is looking at. It's fascinating to me. Kingsley Opawari Manuel says, sometimes God gives your future first. The ones you call little carry in them every possibility you desire of the future. Don't be so gift conscious that you fail to realize that certain things are results of growth. I'm going to read that again. Sometimes God gives you your future first. The ones you call little carry in them every possibility you desire of the future. Don't be so gift conscious that you fail to realize that certain things are results of growth. And I think about my softball team. I think about the little girl who couldn't even stand in the box. She was standing outside the box ready to bat. And I think about the little girl who had never touched a softball before, and now she's the most amazing catcher you've ever seen in your life. I saw something in those little girls that they couldn't see in themselves. Their mom came, are you sure you want to put catching gear on my daughter? Are you sure? You, you know she's like 60 pounds, right? And you want her to get her in the batter's box against a 45-mile-an-hour ball? I, I'm not sure, you know. You have to see potential in, in these kids when you're teaching. No, you can't do math today, but you can do it tomorrow. No, you may not be able to read your sight words today, but we'll try again tomorrow. So this, this, this quote is literally what drives me why I work with kids, why I will always work with children, because I believe God's giving me the future. He's entrusted me with the future. The little ones are the desire, that they're every possibility that I desire for the future are in the kids that I'm mentoring. He appointed families to be accountable to their part of the wall. Can we talk about ministry teams for a second? We've got the parking lot. We've got media We've got children's, we've got youth, we've got worship team, we have counting team, library, coffee bar, connect table. <laughs> Take your pick. We have to be accountable to our part of the wall. And as I said before, he was not motivating masons or carpenters. He was motivating merchants, perfume makers, and goldsmiths. Very interesting stuff. We can get this slide up here, Nehemiah 4, 1 through 6. So we're moving right along, okay? We're about mid, almost midway through Nehemiah. And ah, uh, don't you just love it? Here we go, Nehemiah 4, 1 through 6. When Sembalat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews, and in the presence of his associates in the army of Samaria, can you just see it? Ooh, it just makes me upset because I've been there. Can you just see it? They're all ha-ha laughing around. They're getting all their buddies together making fun of Nehemiah with all of his perfume makers and merchants rebuilding this wall that's been gone for 140 years. What are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble burned as they are? Tobiah the Ammonite, who was at his side, said what they are building, even a fox climbing up on it, would break down their wall of stones. Hear us, our God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Ooh, I love that. I love that. 
Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight. For they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. So we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height. For the people worked with all their heart. For the people worked with all their heart. So we have Sambalat, governor of Samaria. He's upset. And why he's upset is a secure and independent Jerusalem would threaten his hold on the area. And it would undermine the control of the trade route through the region, thus hurting his economy. So yeah, he's got a lot to lose. And this new work of God in Jerusalem will threaten their lifestyle. The enemy doesn't bother with mediocre Christians. Can we just, just say that? Here comes Nehemiah. He's doing something big. And of course, opposition, right? Of course. And let me just tell you, if you're doing big things for God's kingdom and you're sitting in your seat right now and you're shocked and you're upset and you're angry that you're facing opposition, don't be. Because that's exactly where you should be. If you want easy, then don't engage. If you want an easy life, you don't ever have to talk to anybody. Don't serve. Don't give. Don't pray. Don't read your Bible. But the minute that you decide to restore a relationship, the minute that you decide you're not going to quit on your marriage, the minute that you decide to put the alcohol down, the pill bottle, the drugs, the minute, friends, the minute that you decide to do that, the enemy is wrestled. The enemy starts kind of, the minute you decide to get out of debt, the minute you decide to lose those pesky 10 pounds, the enemy wrestles. The minute you wake from your spiritual lethargy, this kind of easy breezy, everything's going all right, the minute you wake from that and you say, I'm not a slave to the culture anymore. You don't get to tell me how my daughters will dress, culture. You don't get to tell me how my marriage goes, culture. Magazines, you don't get to tell me how to live my life. You don't get to do that. The minute that you say that, radical obedience angers the enemy. It's radical. We are living in a day and age where it is radical to stay married. It's radical to come to church. Lecrae, one of my favorite Christian rappers, says, kids, if you want to be, if you want to be, uh, what's the word, defiant, read your Bible. Nobody's doing that. <laughs> I tell my kids that all the time. It's not working, but I'm trying. <laughs> the enemy is not threatened. I think I'm going to ruffle a few feathers here, but hang in there with me. The enemy is not threatened by our safe gatherings where we sing happy songs and everybody gets to walk out the doors feeling good about themselves. And we all get to relish in these soothing lullabies of sermons. The enemy's not bothered by that. But if you give me a sermon where sinners are convicted, people are falling like flies hitting their knees in the presence of a holy God. Pastors pointing them into the cross, the faith that saves. God, may our opposition drive us to a greater dependence on you. 
May we be determined not to miss our calling and our purpose. Don't quit the race when you're so close to the finish line. Thomas Edison says many of life's failures are people who did not realize how close they were to success when they gave up. We can go to Nehemiah 5, chapters 1 through 12. Hang in there with me. This is one of the long, last long ones. <laughs> now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their fellow Jews. Some were saying, we and our sons and daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. Others were saying, we're mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, our homes to get grain during the famine. Still others were saying, we have yet to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards, although we are the same flesh and blood as our fellow Jews, and through, although our children are as good as theirs, yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved. This blows my mind. Blows my mind. But we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. When I heard their outcry and these charges, I was angry. I pondered in my mind and accused the nobles and officials. I said, you are charging your own people interest? So I called them together a large meeting to deal with them and said, as far as possible, we have bought back our fellow Jews who were sold to the Gentiles. Now you are selling your own people only for them to be sold back to us. They kept quiet. Obviously. They didn't have anything to say. So I continued, what are you doing is not what you're doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? I and my brothers and my men are also lending the people money and grain, but let us stop charging interest. Give back to them immediately their fields, vineyards, olive groves, and houses, and also the interest you're charging them. One percent of the money, grain, new wine, and olive oil. We will give it back, they said, and we will not demand anything more from them. We will do what you say. Then I summoned the priests and made the nobles and officials take an oath to do what they had promised. And if I can go ahead and get 14 and 17 up through um, as well. Um, we won't read this, but basically what it's saying, you can read it on your own, is Nehemiah took initiative. He didn't just pull the governor card, which I don't, I don't know if I was clear about that, but the king of Persia un, uh, appointed him governor. So he is the man at this point. And it would have been easy for him just to pull all the priests in and all the nobles and all the guys with all the money and say, look, stop enslaving your own people. Stop charging these ridiculous taxes and taking away all these guys. They've got to live. They're here doing, we're all on the same team, right? So he didn't just have opposition from the outsiders. He had opposition within his own people. That resonates with me so much, and that's a different sermon at a different time. <laughs> but I want, I want you to see all the things that Nehemiah is having to deal with. And, and, and the thing I love about Nehemiah is that he didn't just pull them all in and say, do this. He led by example. He was the governor, and you'll see it says the best food that was sent to him, he and his top advisors didn't eat. He allowed other men at his table to eat and to strategize and to meet with him. So he didn't just go and tell everybody else what to do. He led by example. And I love it, too, because it talks about how we're going to go into this in a minute. But it talks about how, like, they lived a very, they led very humbly. I, I, I mean, obviously why I love him so much. So if we could go to um, Nehemiah 4, 10 through 16. And I'm not going to read this. Um, you, can, you can read it on your own. But essentially, people are getting tired. And they're getting worried, as they should be. Nehemiah goes, he assesses the gaps, and he stations people at the exposed places. He says, okay, here's my opposition. I've identified the enemy. I've identified the problem. One hand on your work, 
one hand holds your weapon. And again, I can hear the soundtrack in my head. <laughs> because I think of myself every day, you know. Maybe, maybe your work is a pencil with, with documents. Maybe your work is literally serving people food. Maybe your work is making really big decisions that affect everyone. I don't know what your vocation is here today. But I love this where he says that they had one hand on the work and one hand on the weapon. What is our weapon? Our weapon's God's holy word. Our weapon is the armor of God. Are we going out and doing the work without being covered? What does that look like for us? Nehemiah was vigilant to arm the workers and post guards around the clock. He put into place a warning system. I think this is really cool. So that wherever the trumpet was blown, the workers would quickly rally there to defend their families in the city. The workers didn't take off their clothes at night so that they would be ready to defend the city. If that's not vigilance, <laughs> if that's not vigilance, I don't know what is. Again, I'm still hearing the soundtrack in my head. This is amazing stuff. And we can pull up Nehemiah 6, 1 through 9. When word came to assemble at Tobiah, Geshem, and Arab, and the rest of the enemies that I had rebuilt the wall, not a gap was left, though up at the time I had not set the doors and the gates. Sambalet and Geshep sent me this message. Come, let us meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. So now they're going, okay, this guy is not budging. So we're going to try to be friends with him. We're going to try a different approach. But they were scheming to harm me, so I sent messengers to them with this reply. I am carrying on a great project, and I cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? Four times. They sent me the same message, and each time I gave them the same answer. Then the fifth time, Sembalet sent his aide to me with the same message, and in his hand was an unsealed letter in which was written, It is reported among the nations, and Geshem says it's true that you and the Jews are plotting to revolt, and therefore you are rebuilding the wall. Moreover, according to these reports, you are about to become their king and have even appointed prophets to make this proclamation about you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah. Now this report will get back to the king. So come, let us meet together. I sent him this reply. Nothing like what you are saying is happening. You are just making it up in your own head. <laughs> I like that. They were all trying to frighten us, thinking their hands will get too weak for the work, and it will not be completed. But I prayed, now strengthen my hands. There's two things that I really love in this, in this passage. It's, I'm busy, I can't come down. What is the greatest thing that I could give my life to? I'm doing a great work, and I'm not coming down. I'm not going to allow anything to distract me from the privilege of, have, of investing in kids in my classroom, on my team. Nothing's going to pull me away from that ministry. Nothing's going to pull me away from that mission. What is yours today? They're going to go on and live longer than me and do things I would never have the potential to do. You're doing a great work, and you can't afford to come down, friends. Think of what it could mean if, down, if you come down from the great work that you're doing what it would mean to your family, your friends, your community, if you don't accomplish the work that God has called you to do. There's a commentary by J. Sidlow Baxter, and I like it because it kind of ties all this up in a nice little bow. There's no winning without working and warring. There's no opportunity without opposition. There's no open door set before us without there being many adversaries to obstruct our entering it. Whenever the saints say, let us arise and build, the enemy says, let us arise and oppose. There is no triumph without trouble, no victory without vigilance. There is a cross in the way to every crown that is worth wearing. There are the walls of a city of God to be built in every individual human heart. There are walls of a city of God to be built among the nations of the earth. 
So I'd like you guys to do something for me as we kind of wrap this up a little bit. If you have time, if you feel comfortable doing this, I just, I want to talk about this little piece right here, which really and truthfully is the biggest part for me, and I'll strengthen my hands. And I want you to hold out your hands and just give them a good look. This is one of the things that I love about yoga. Um, I'm also a yoga teacher, and one of the things that I love about yoga is that how many times do we actually ask ourselves how we feel? When was the last time you actually took a look at your hands? These are hands that have wiped noses, hands that have written reports, hands that have been sapped of strength from hard work, Hands that have caressed a baby's cheek. Hands that have made so many meals you can't possibly count. Hands that have repaired one car, one broken appliance after another. Hands that maybe can't do one more thing. Or hands that have been balled in fists with anger at the latest bad news. Nehemiah didn't complain to God. He didn't say, woe is me. These people will not listen. These people are literally selling each other as slaves. These people are taxing one another. I've got these dudes over here that do not want this to succeed. Our weapons are torn down. Our wall is too big. Nehemiah never did that. He never once said this wall will never be built. He could have quit. No one would have blamed him. But no, what does he do? Strengthen my hands, God see me. Please see me. Help me. He knew quitting is what the enemy wanted. What work does God have for your hands to do today? What opposition threatens to weaken your work for Jesus? What do other people or the enemy himself wish you wouldn't be able to finish? And that's what I want to ask you today. All around the room, if you're looking around, looking at your hands, you're looking at me, whatever, whatever you're thinking about, I would challenge you with that. What is it that's before you that God has put in front of you? And maybe you're weary. I get it. Coaching is hard. Teaching is hard. Being a mom is hard. Being a wife is hard. Being a decent person is hard. <laughs> what is it that God has put before you? What has God put in your hands to do today? And what would the enemy love to see you not complete? And how could your community, how could your family, how could the person beside you, how could the lady in front of you at the grocery store, how could that change if you said yes and you kept going and you said, God, strengthen my hands? So I'm going to ask the worship team to come up and the prayer team. Um, we just, we're going to go ahead and conclude, but if there's someone here today that um, needs prayer for something specific, um, or if something in this message just knocked you, knocked you on your knees, it's the best place to be. That's what Nehemiah did. <laughs> it's literally what Nehemiah did. Nehemiah got the bad news. Nehemiah hit his knees and he prayed. Nehemiah confessed his own sins because he knew he was going to need to have a pure, clean heart to go forward with what he had to do. All eyes on Nehemiah. 
Nehemiah goes to this place who's been sitting in rubble for 100 plus years, a people that no one else is going to do it. And he makes this happen. So we'll just um, close our eyes, bow your heads with me.